0: Last month on the show, our guest made a case for the F-35 Lightning II, a trillion-dollar highly complex but hugely capable fifth-generation fighter intended to fight and win conflicts with peer or near-peer enemies. But is that the only combat aircraft the U.S. needs? What about relatively poor countries fighting low-grade conflicts against nefarious actors? Is cheap, simple, and basic a suitable solution? Well, that's what our guest from the Sierra Nevada Corporation is here to discuss this week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast.
1: Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet
2: radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Iello.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. This is episode 124, and we'll get to our discussion on 21st century light attack with our guest, Samuel Milam, in just a bit. But first, some introductions. I am your host, Jello, and I'm not alone this week. He's not just good at warbirds. He helps me with all kinds of things. Welcome back, Trevor Boswell. How's it going, Boat?
3: Hey, Jello, what's going on? Things are uh, good down here south, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, y- you've been doing so much uh, on your own lately, I just thought I'd drag you in and we could do this together. So yeah, what's new in Georgia?
3: Well, yeah, I guess you'd call us the two best friends that anybody could have. So it's good down here. You know, it's fall transition, so the leaves are changing and we're right up here against the uh, Halloween timeframe and everything. So mm-hmm. just getting excited for uh, throwing away a bunch of money at candy and uh, all that good stuff. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I call it wealth redistribution through sugar. Yeah, no, I passed through Atlanta yesterday and it was kind of cold actually. And now I'm down in Fort Myers, just laying over for a little bit and uh, still doing the airline gig. Now, speaking of that, come on, don't be too modest, right? Our company had a big reshuffle lately and you have an announcement, don't you?
3: Yeah, I guess so. So yeah, the uh, airline gods have smiled on me yet again and I am going to still be based in Atlanta and uh, I get to go be a captain back on the 320. So I get to rejoin my... Airline routes, if you will, uh, and back to the uh, stick kind of flying, if you will.
0: Well, congratulations. I mean, that's a big milestone. Obviously, it's a big pay jump and responsibility jump as well. But the biggest one is, yeah, on previous episodes, you and I talked about the COVID world kind of shook you up a little bit as you were also moving and you had to jump to a different platform you weren't as crazy about. But now you get to switch seats and go back to your old gal there. So uh, it sounds like the uh, gods are smiling, as you say.
3: I cannot complain. The hardest thing is going to be trying to figure out how to fly with my left hand. So it's going to be blessings and curses (laughs) all over the place, but no, overall it's really good. Very (laughs) excited. You know, a little nervous, obviously first time as a captain and stuff. So a little bit different in that respect, but other than that, just learning how to taxi is probably the hardest thing at this point. So,
0: well, and I bet you'll find that fairly easy, but yeah, some trepidation is probably to be expected because when you sit where you and I currently do, we all know that there's someone on the left side of the buck stops with him and he's ultimately responsible. There's some peace in that, but now that's going to be you. So that's right. uh, I'm sure you'll do great. Thank you. Well, I didn't really put in for anything because I'm just hoping to not be as junior as I've been lately. So I'm just still doing the same old thing in LA. That's all good. But let's see, what other announcements are there? Dude, your Hawker Hurricane, I think we're supposed to call it, episode was really great. And it's funny because you're safe for solo now. So I'm not trying to, at least, I don't know, you tell me, but I'm trying not to micromanage you on, on your program. But when I was listening to your American guest, I thought, oh man, we're going to hear about this. And then you brought in your uh, Brit guest, So I thought that was a really great episode, dude.
3: I appreciate that. I had a ton of fun. And uh, yeah, Dan was uh, our UK guest and he was a great sport with uh, helping us out. And obviously you got a little bit of time change there, but we made it happen. (laughs) He is a wealth of knowledge and I look forward for uh, him to come back on our uh, Spitfire episode. Still waiting to figure out when we're going to throw that in there. But Warren was amazing and he did an awesome job giving us the baseline stuff. And then Dan filled in around it. I look forward to you know what's coming down the pike. I can't uh, say that I'm going to be able to find a appropriate country representative for each of the warbirds as much as I would like to, but hopefully at least we can get some uh, proper foreign representation for uh, the respective warbirds as we go. For sure.
0: And we'll do our best with those, of course. And it's just fun to watch you grow in podcasting and how you do it. And by all means, buddy, uh, publicly here, let me tell you, I, you know, bringing on two guests, or if you want to change up the format a little bit, go for it because it's kind of a mini series within a series with your warbirds. And so it's fun to watch and I've been listening as well. So nicely done.
3: Well, thank you very much. And I did change the format for the, I guess will be the November episode. And I'll keep that one a secret uh, as we get a little bit closer to it, but okay,
0: yeah, we do have a, a little bit of a change of format. So I look forward to everybody getting to hear it. Fantastic. Otherwise on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, you might have noticed we've had a lot of sponsored content lately. We've made friends with folks at Raytheon and Neckex and Cubic and You know, we have to uh, entertain different ideas to create revenue, but also get the message out. And I guess my contract to you is we're going to throw the word sponsored on the front of it so you can see what it is. But on the other hand, we're not going to just put out any old thing. It's still going to fit our niche. Hopefully folks will listen and enjoy and sounds like they have. So that's a good thing. You know what, Boat? I saw an article recently about increased incidences of cancer in military pilots. Did you happen to catch that?
3: I did also see that one. And I guess The short answer is, I guess I'm not surprised. And, you know, it's kind of like that neck X content that we did. Yeah. It's not a surprise, you know, you're pulling G's, you're doing all that kind of stuff. Your neck's going to hurt. Well, you've got a radar out there, a lot of electronic transmissions going along. I am not exactly surprised that cancer is kind of more prevalent than the average person, if you will, in the fighter community.
0: And we're not as exposed to some of the fluids like fuel and hydraulics as certainly the maintainers, but there's that as well, right? So yeah, you're breathing in the fumes. Like you said, you're sitting by the radar doing all those other things, pulling all those Gs. So yeah, you know, I'm not going to sit here and doubt the veracity of the study, but I think also fighter pilots certainly like to live big in other realms of their life. So I'm not sure how much correlation or causation there is. But uh, at any rate, interesting to see as, as we'll uh, pan that out. And and that might actually dictate some of our content coming up in the future here on the show. We can talk about that later. And then I guess the other big announcement is there was some interesting uh, revelations coming out of China. You want to touch on that with the J-20?
3: Yeah, a little kind of a sneak attack, if you will, on uh, new stuff coming out when it comes mm-hmm. to uh, the number of seats in a stealth aircraft. For the first time, I guess we've got now a two-seat Stealth variant of the J twenty, and I know there's a J twenty AS or a J twenty B or you know whatever. And mm-hmm. we've talked about the uh, nomenclature with respect to aircraft designations, but yeah, kind of a new development. Nobody's really sure what it is, and obviously, not a ton of information coming out of China on their aircraft beyond what we can see at air shows and stuff. I'll be interested to see what it looks like on the inside, and I think that'll maybe tell us a lot about what the purpose is in the real world, maybe.
0: And I read some speculation in one of the articles about maybe the backseater could be involved with some of the loyal wingman stuff that's coming along, or at least their equivalent of that, or just managing systems or situational awareness. So yeah. Interesting to see. And of course, there's a lot of great content to find these things. Our friends over at the war zone put it out, but we've got our own newsletter. If you haven't subscribed to it, go to the fighter pilot podcast.com website. You'll see a little pop up. It's kind of hard to ignore. You can subscribe to that. And every other Wednesday, we'll send you a list of some of the most current articles that are floating around and we consolidate that for you so you can read up on all that cool stuff. So, well, Boat, before we get into today's questions, can we circle back to some of the stuff you talked about on your hurricane episode? Definitely. You talked about the FAPE and the Surgrad thing. And you also, by the way, touched on the F-14 TomCast, our friends Crunch and are doing. Thanks for that. And so on this most recent episode for flying the F-14, their guest Slammer was a Surgrad. So funny how that works out with what you were talking about. And then you were talking about AIM-120s on the wingtips of the F-16. And by the way, I think we answered that question incorrectly a long time ago on this show, so I'm glad you straightened that out. But you were speculating on the F-18, weren't you?
3: I was, yeah. I wasn't quite sure on uh, the innards, if you will, of the F-18 and whether it was even capable of carrying an AIM-120 on the wingtip. And uh, I don't know, Jello, you're the expert on that guy, so let's bounce back to you.
0: I'm not sure I'm the expert, but I don't think it's ever been flight tested, and I think it comes down to the fact that F-18s fold their wings, and the wing fold mechanism is a stress point, and when we manage flee or flight life expectancy, I probably got that wrong, but anyway, the amount of use, like miles on a car of your airplane, that wing fold is one of the things we measure. You know, an AIM-120 weighs 300 and what, 35 pounds versus less yeah. than 200 for an AIM-9? I bet you, but it just comes down to stress on the wing fold and it could probably do it, but I bet that's why they never tested it or wanted to do it.
3: That seems like a smart way to manage the fleet life. And I guess really just depends on the value added to putting one on the wingtip vice another inboard station. So
0: yeah. Yep. That's my guess. If someone knows better, you can uh, please call in or phone in or whatever. I guess I just said the same thing, but you know, let us know. So speaking of calling in and phoning in, why don't we take our first phone call
1: question?
3: Hello, hello. It's uh, Jean-François from uh, Quebec, Canada. Uh, I have a question about uh, regarding the icing on the fighter jets. Are there any systems on the aircraft or maneuvers you can do to uh, at least alleviate the effects of icing on your uh, fighter aircraft? I know most airliners and uh, general aviation aircraft have systems such as inflatable boots or uh, EDIT, the leading edges or, or something. But is there any uh, systems on fighter jets to uh, alleviate or uh, fight the effects of icing? Rachel, love the show.
0: Thanks. All right, Jean-Francois, thanks for the question. Yeah, you know, fighters, at least the F-18, don't have a lot of capability to deal with icing. In fact, flying in known icing conditions is prohibited in the F-18, at least it was when I was in. We didn't have any de-icing. We simply had engine anti-icing. That was just some heat that they would put in the front of the engine, and it was intended to keep ice from building up on the engines. Boat, is the F-16 any different? I flew the F-16 a little, but honestly, I don't remember, and I don't think we flew it. In very inclement conditions usually anyway
3: yep it is uh identically you got one uh peto heat and throw that on there and a little light will flash and tell you that the uh anti-ice is working but otherwise you have real no control over it other than just making sure the system's on so yeah same thing
0: yeah well actually hold on though so we do have pedo heat and that's those little probes that stick out into the wind stream and then we have engine anti-ice as well so i guess there is more than one but yeah basically trying to prevent ice not really dealing with ice once it's there Exactly. Yep. Okay. All right, next, let's take an email. This is from Lachlan Mann-Jones from Cairns QLD Australia. He's currently a cadet corporal in the Australian Air Force Cadets and an aspiring fighter pilot for the Royal Australian Air Force. And he says, I was wondering what happens to squadrons that are discontinued, we would say disestablished in the Navy, mainly the pilots. Where do they go? Do they still fly after their squadron has been discontinued or disestablished? Well, Lachlan, that's a good question. They try to manage that, particularly for folks that are relatively young in their career. If they can switch them to another squadron, they will, or if they can expedite sending them to their next assignment, they'll do that a little early. They try to deal with them. Now, a big problem is what do they do with NFOs, Naval Flight Officers? So sometimes you'll have, for example, an EA-6B Prowler squadron that will convert to an EA 18G growler squadron. And instead of three ECMOs, now you only need one EWO per aircraft. And so a lot of those folks end up sort of without a job. They might offer them to transfer to something else, whether it's flying or non-flying, or they might just offer them, Hey, you can get out if you want. So aircrew do have to deal with this. It's not uncommon. And usually the high performers, as a reward for their high performance, can find continued life in or out of the cockpit. Everyone else just has to try to make do or move on. Boat, do you deal with this at all in the Air Force?
3: Yeah, it's the same basic process. You know, manpower being the thing that in these instances is the excess. And so they kind of do a drawdown, if you will, and start reducing the number of pilots. They don't bring as many back in to backfill them and they shut down the squadron. And then by the end, basically, they're all farmed out to the new units or retire or separate from the military or whatever the process is for their specific careers. But yeah, that sounds pretty much like the same process, Joe.
0: No, curiously, uh, Lachlan didn't necessarily ask it, but the opposite of his question is what happens when they're standing up a squadron? So they might go cherry pick a few folks out of other squadrons, if it makes sense, or they'll have the pilots kind of, getting ready at the training squadron, and then just kind of pooled until that new squadron is ready. So that's always a challenge. Either direction, I would say, is a challenge boat, because again, you've got this big move of a lot of people at once versus the normal paradigm, right? Which is every couple of months, you either lose someone or gain someone or both, really. And that's just the idea there, of course, is to keep fresh blood kind of Coming in all the time, and those who have been there a while kind of moving on. And I think that's true, what, except for probably Air National Guard units where you can stick around for a long time.
3: Yeah, I'd say so. I know they just stood up within the last, I think, probably two or three years. I can't remember exactly when that was, but the squadron of F 35s up at Eielson Air Force Base in Alaska and building up a new squadron from zero, you know, is. The reverse process—you get Mm -hmm. probably four or five kind of initial cadre of the organization. You get a commander and a director of operations, or a XO for the Navy equivalency there, and a few smart heads in the uh, organization to make sure that all the infrastructure is established. And that's not just the operations side; that's the maintenance side as well. So, making sure that you have all the maintenance infrastructure and support available to the airplanes, and then they start one by one adding those airplanes. And as they roll off the flight lines, they either may send a pilot down to go shuffle one up, or the depot or whatever maintenance facility is that they're uh, bringing them into the service is going to get them up there and ferry them up there for them. Yeah. They just build it up until it's at its whatever required state and then they're good to go. So yeah, slow drawdown when you're shutting one down and slow build up when
0: you're bringing one up. So same thing. Okay. Good question, Lachlan. All right, next let's take another phone call. Hey
2: Joe, this is Henry from Wichita Falls, Texas. Where I live is actually the reason why I'm asking this question.
3: I'm right next to Shepard Air Force Base, where they do a lot of training with T-38s.
2: On some days, the planes seem to be particularly loud, or rather in some instances, I think it's because they're an afterburner. And I know you talked about restrictions about mock, but I'm wondering if you have any particular restrictions about using afterburner around populated areas or at certain altitudes near populations. And if sometimes people mess that up and uh, if they sometimes get in trouble for it, I don't really mind whenever pilots are flying low and really loud because I just like jets, but I'm sure my neighbors sometimes don't appreciate it. Thanks so much for the show and for taking my question. Have a
0: good one. All right. Good question, Henry. Boat, you want to take a stab at this first?
3: Yeah, for sure. So, Henry, I went to pilot training at Shepard, so I'm well familiar with generally speaking the flight patterns and everything around the field and i think the bottom line answer is no there are no restrictions on afterburn use but when you're doing takeoffs and everything like that that require more thrust you're going to use afterburners if you're not requiring them you won't because you just don't need to use the gas that way safety of flight afterburner is an available tool for you so if you have an issue or you need additional thrust then you use afterburner but normally you know you're only flying around the pattern about 250 300 knots depending on any sort of local restrictions and that kind of thing. And and so for the T-38s out there that have afterburn capability, they shouldn't be normally using it around the pattern unless there is a safety of flight issue. And depending on what direction that thrust is traveling and where you're standing in relation to it, it may be louder in certain directions than it will in others. But for the most part, the only time you're ever going to hear it is if you're on the uh, the approach end of a uh, takeoff runway and uh, the initial takeoff for those aircraft. So I don't know, Jell, any, anything that you know of around the boat or? fields for you guys?
0: Well, for the boat, nobody cares because you're out in the ocean. But around fields like North Island, where I live, the whole Coronado rumbles every time something takes off to an afterburner. And it's just a function of the course rules. So for noise sensitive locations, they'll generally say deselect afterburner as soon as safely possible after Getting airborne because the idea is hey look you know safety comes first but if you can deselect the afterburner quickly then that'll help cut down on the noise complaints and unfortunately there is a lot of encroachment around military bases of course and so we need to use these parts of our aircraft for safety but some people don't like it and understandably so I mean I spent a career in it and I still can tell you know again my whole house you can hear it it's like hey, well it's pretty loud so especially if I'm trying to record an episode or something it can be a slight annoyance but I still love it Good question.
3: Yeah, no, that was a great question. And uh, Jello, how about I throw one back at you? This is an email from Brandon Parr. Okay. And he asks, Jello, what kind of training do you need to go through in order to become the threat aircraft SME at Top Gun? And was this a syllabus involving classroom, trips to allies who use the same threat aircraft, backseat rides? Did you get a pilot, any certain aircraft or anything like that? And Finally, what features surprised you when you learned about these threat aircraft and he's thinking about like rear facing radar and the flanker family or something, you know, some kind of capabilities like that. That was a laundry list of questions. So let's break that down. What's that initial uh, SME process look like?
0: Yeah, that is a good question, Brandon, and it's something that every Top Gun instructor goes through when they first get there. So you sit down with the old bro, as it's called, the person you're relieving, to find out what they are doing in that subject matter area and how they did it and where they think you need to go. And so each syllabus is different. It's just whatever that person thinks you need. And then as you start doing your research, you can request funds to go travel to different places. So in my case, uh, Punchy Kilty was the guy who I took over from, and, and he recommended. Did I go out to then? It was called NAIC National Air Intelligence Center. I think since then, boat they've added an S to it, right? NAIC, yep, National Air and Space Intelligence Center. Yep. I won't go into a whole lot of what I did out there, but they have got some folks that are smart on different threat aircraft. So had a chance to sit down with them and do some other things. You can also go different places if you think it matters. I actually went to the Paris Air Show and had a chance to look firsthand at some of the newest aircraft that the uh, Russians were offering and some of the weapons and all that. So that was interesting. Yeah. You just do what it takes to become the expert so that when you're lecturing on it, you have the credibility to really say, yeah, you know, when I went and sat in this or looked at it or whatever, that you can say, this is really difficult for the pilot to do because they didn't put the engineering into the ergonomics. And to Brandon's second question, that is one of the things that stood out to me. Now, I imagine like this two-seat J-20 we were talking about earlier, but I got to think they've gotten this right by now. But when I was the top gun threat aircrafts me, it was still the bread and butter MiG-29 and SU-27 Flanker. And those were designed in the 80s. And I was always just struck by how very basic they were and seemed to be Not very, oh, how should I put it? They didn't really consider pilot inputs, would be my guess, because things didn't seem like they were in the right place and the ergonomics just didn't seem right. So that was one. Just the ruggedness of Russian aircraft was another for me. I guess they were designed to kind of uh, leapfrog forward maybe in the fold the gap or whatever. And so land on austere runways and block their intakes from FOD jumping up in there. So the ruggedness, but as well, the make 29s forward canted expendables dispenser. I remember seeing that and thinking, that's just crazy. And then once I learned how well it worked, I said, Oh, that's a good idea. Why aren't we doing something like that? Because the idea is, is it throws them out into the wind stream with a little bit of a forward velocity. Of course, they're going to start drifting aft right away, but that can be a very good infrared countermeasure, I guess, counter countermeasure because. They look at velocity and rise rates and everything else. Uh, I'm going to get myself tongue-tied here, but, right, you've got a missile that's looking at you, so then you've got a IR decoy, let's say, to try to throw off the heat seeker, but then the heat seeker says, okay, I'm going to look for certain things, but wait, it's moving forward, so anyway, there's a lot of counter moves, just like in chess, And so that surprised me. But overall, it was a great experience, Brandon. Thanks for asking. And I really enjoyed it. And then when I turned over, when I left, I did the same thing Punchy did for me. Hey, here's what I think is important. Here's where I think you should go and the things you should learn. You mentor them as well before you leave. And they take it over. That is a requirement before you leave Top Gun. Or they'll bring you back. But the uh, new bro has to uh, do the murder board before the old bro bails. It's a pretty good system and it works pretty well. I really enjoyed it.
3: That exactly mirrors what I did as an aggressor, as an infrared missile SME, like to the T. The only difference was the briefing setup and stuff like that. You know, we did a murder board and everything else like that. And So you'd sit there and you'd take questions from your squadron members and obviously the previous row, as you call them, and and all that kind of stuff. So their laundry list of questions and there's some pre-canned ones. And then there's the ones that people come up with off the cuff and everything like that. Did you ever get any rides or anything? Or backseat rides, or experience any actual operation of the aircraft?
0: Not backseat rides. So I'll leave it at that. But no, had a chance to do different things, but not a backseat ride, which is unfortunate. I'd love to have a chance to do that.
3: Yeah. No, that would have been fun. Also, never had the opportunity, but,
0: uh, yeah, oh, too bad. Yeah. You know
3: always want those kinds of things. It's like why I do the Warbird stuff. I always want to ride, but yeah. I don't own one. So here we are.
0: Not yet. I hope you get one, but yeah. Yeah. And I think it's worth pointing out. I've done this in a couple uh, musings that I've written, but the term bro is a term for a Top Gun instructor and it doesn't relate to race or gender. It's just something that the folks call each other. So fair enough. All right, but well, that'll do it for questions. What do you say we get into today's discussion? It's 21st century light attack. You had a chance to listen. Any thoughts before we get to it?
3: No, I thought it was a really good kind of overview of the entire concept of light attack and a lot of the considerations for why we are, at least within the United States, looking to populate our military with potentially a smaller, lighter, light attack, obviously, airframe that is a little more cost-effective to uh, operate for low-intensity conflicts where air superiority has already been established. So that was a great chat, and I think we'll definitely have some stuff to discuss after the fact, but yeah, it sounds good.
0: Okay, cool. Well, hey, I'll see you on the backside. So let's get to 21st Century Light Attack and specifically a little bit on the A-29 Super Tucano with Spam from the Sierra Nevada Corporation. My guest today is retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Samuel Milam. He is a former A-10 pilot and now he works for Sierra Nevada Corporation and he does a lot of other things, but right now he's my guest. How are you doing there, Spam?
2: I'm doing great, Jello. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for taking the time to come on the show. And I'm really excited for what we're going to talk about. I am too. Good. Well, my second question to you is going to be with all the latest talk about the F-35 and fifth gen hotness and everything else. Do we need a simple, cheap, and easy solution on the 21st century battlefield? But that is, as I said, my second question. My first question to you is where are you from? What have you done in the military? And what are you doing now? I kind of hinted at it, but we want to get to know you before we start talking about the subject.
2: Sounds good. My story, I grew up in Mississippi went to the Air Force Academy Graduated in the class of 89 there. After that, I was lucky enough to get an A-10 assignment out of pilot training. And I flew A-10s at McCord Air Force Base, Washington, believe it or not. Then moved to Moody Air Force Base out of there. I was lucky enough to get selected to go to uh, weapons school. So I attended the fighter weapons school for uh, six months. Then I spent two years at Osan Air Force Base in Korea, mm. which was awesome. Came back from there and uh, was an instructor at Nellis in the A-10 squadron for three years. Then I went to the Staff College, you know, standard payback side of thing. And then the Staff job, which was great, I actually was on the Staff Joint Special Operations Command uh, when General McChrystal and uh, Admiral Craven were there. So that was interesting times. Was a DO of a fighter squadron after that and one of the FTUs at Davis-Monthan Air Force Base teaching young kids how to fly A-10s. And then I got picked to be the 75th Fighter Squadron Commander, which is probably one of the biggest honors of my life. I got to be Shark 1. Pretty significant heritage associated with that squadron, as most people know, in the Flying Tigers. Cool. Went to Navy War College after that, so I got a little uh, blue to go with my Air Force there. Newport was great. We really enjoyed that. It was a good experience. After Newport, I went to Davis-Monthan again to be the group commander of the 355th Fighter Group there. There's one operational A-10 squadron that deploys all over, and at the time, the two 10 FTUs. So that was my group command. And then from there, I went to back to Moody to be the 93rd Air Ground Operations Wing Commander, which was a great honor. That's kind of an odd wing with airmen all over the United States. Three groups, the 3rd ASOG, which is all of the airmen who do Joint Tactical Air Control for the 3rd Corps, and then the 18th ASOG, which does all of the Joint Tactical Air Control for the 18th Airborne Corps. So I had, as I said it, little specks of blue floating in a sea of green at all the Army forts pretty much in the United States. And we also had a base defense group, which is stationed at Moody Air Force Base. Three squadrons of security forces guys who go on an expeditionary basis to secure outlying bases. You know, if we're going to stand up a drone base or a Reaper base somewhere in the heart of somewhere not so nice, these guys would go and secure the area for them in an expeditionary basis. So three groups there in that wing. Very diverse, very interesting uh, work. Not flying, but uh, it was awesome. Then I wrapped up my career at Randolph Air Force Base in Texas on the staff of Air Education and Training Command, so our training command in the Air Force. And I was the Deputy A3 for flying training, which meant that all the flying training we do in the Air Force kind of came through the A3 office and responsible for syllabi and execution. The Programming and sustainment and, and everything else that went along with the uh, flying training business. And I'll tell you what, I'd never seen that particular machine from the inside before. And it was pretty amazing what I learned in that assignment. Oh. But I retired from there and I also got to fly T6s while I was there. So, career A10 guy, right. The f- commander that hired me, General Rand, he said, Spam, what do you want to fly when you come here? Because at Randolph, they have T-38s, A-T-38s, T-1s, and T-6s, you know, all of the instructor pilot courses there for all of the pilot training that we do. Flight school, you would call it. And I said, well, I've flown 38s, but I've never flown the T-6. I was a T-37 guy when I went to pilot training, right? We didn't have T-6s yet. So I said, I want to go fly T-6s. And he goes, that's perfect. So I got to fly T-6s for three years while I was there. A lot of insight in that, but then stepped off the boat out of retirement into Sierra Nevada Corporation, who flies A-29s, the subject of our Mm. discussion. And while I was there on the staff, they stood up the 81st Fighter Squadron at Moody, which was stood up to train Afghans to fly A-29s. And there were contractors and GS civilians and active duty guys all working side by side to teach these guys how to be attack pilots, for lack of Mm -hmm. a more subtle term. It looked like great work. I was associated with it as a colonel. And then when I retired, Sierra Nevada said, hey, do you want to come fly for us? Seems like a great fit. You got some turboprop time, a bunch. You got a bunch of A-10 time. And I said, yes, please. <laughs> that was an easy first step off the boat.
0: Yeah, it uh, sounds like it. I mean, you certainly had the pedigree they were looking for. I mean, golly, how many hours in the A-10 at that point?
2: So 3,300 hours in the A-10. Wow. By the time our A-10A and A-10C About a little over a 1,000 in the C model and the rest in the A-10A.
0: So you're used to being down and dirty, rooting around, supporting the folks on the ground, doing close air support. Were you also a forward air controller?
2: I was a qualified JTAC three times in my career. Wow. Early in the, until about halfway through my career, we had what we called battalion air liaison officers or BALOs. Okay. I saw you did a podcast on the Anglico program, which is a great you had a pretty awesome capability that the Marine Corps, uh, the Navy field, Mm -hmm. similar, the tactical air control party is kind of the similar thing that the air force fields for the army. You know, the difference is of course, that I'm not working for guys that I grew up with in the Marine Corps. I'm working for guys that I've never met who are in the army, but the BALO program specifically was an interesting concept. A-10 squadrons at the time for a while were manned, At a higher level per aircraft, two to one for a single-seat aircraft, Mm -hmm. which is high. But that's because they had balos embedded in their squadrons. So as a balo, my job every day was to go out and be the best A-10 pilot that I could be. But I was aligned with an Army battalion. In my particular case, a Mech Infantry Battalion at the 24th Infantry Division, which later became the 3rd Infantry Division at Fort Stewart in Georgia. Okay, So... If those guys went somewhere, like if they got committed to a conflict somewhere, I was no longer an A10 guy. I got pulled out of that squadron oh. and I went with my battalion to wherever they were going. In fact, I deployed to Bright Star with them one time, which was a very interesting uh, deployment. But yes, okay JTAC qualified guy, you know you f- fall in on this uh, battalion and go where they go. It was interesting.
0: Well, that is very interesting, I would say, your background, because lately on this show, we have talked all about the latest hotness, if you will, right? So F-35, fifth generation, multi-trillion dollar fighter programs. But I would guess you're here to tell me that there is still a place on the battlefield for a light and simple and cheap and easy solution, huh? I mean, in broad terms, is there still a place for that?
2: Yes, (laughs) is the short answer. (laughs)
0: We've got plenty of time to flesh this out, Spam.
2: Sure. There's a little bit of unpacking to do there. Yeah. But it's hard to have a discussion about F-35 and light attack in the same sentence because they're not the same thing. Of course, you know, it's the ultimate apples and oranges. Everybody understands that. Mm -hmm. So I would say you don't need light attack to fight near peers, probably that's not an epiphany, right?
0: That's not going to go well. Yes.
2: No, I mean, it's not. I mean, maybe there's some things you could do with it, but it's not something that's going to be on your strike package on day one. That's just not how it goes. And because of things like fifth gen, fourth gen plus, we need to be able to win day one through 10, day one through 15 or whatever, or we don't have anything to do anymore. Right. It's it's over. So I understand that side of it. Of course, I'm a taxpayer, just like everybody else, <laughs> almost everybody else. But there are places for it. 100%. So it kind of boils down to a national security priority. Are we going to maintain the capability across a broad spectrum or are we not? And if we are not, and you could argue that the slant towards or the path towards only fifth gen or only, I'll say just high end fight leaves you vulnerable in other places. If you think you're still going to engage in those places. So that's the national security priority I'm talking about. If we choose not to care about the most likely thing to happen, which is we're going to be fighting insurgents somewhere in some place that we don't want to be. If we choose to believe that's going to happen, then we don't need anything that's more cost effective than, you know, Mm F-35. I don't think that's true. I think that's whistling past the cemetery. And I honestly, I don't think people are doing that. Right. I don't think our decision makers are doing that. I think they understand this concept clearly. The great leap is, do I dedicate something to something that's low end? If you want to say it that way, Mm -hmm. light attack, for example, knowing that I cannot use it in the existential war that may happen someday, the least likely thing to happen, but the most dangerous thing to happen. So if I'm willing to invest in that, to have a broader spectrum of capabilities, then of course it's the right thing to do. Now, if the argument doesn't end there. That's the linear top level, kind of easy to understand argument. But there's second and third order effects, I think, to light attack that probably aren't well understood across the viewership or the general public.
0: So let me interrupt, Spam, because from my Navy background, when I think of light, light attack, I think of the old wings, like in Lamore. Back when they were flying A4s and A7 Corsairs, which an A7 is not by most standards, quote unquote, light. But these days, a light attack means something different, right? So we're talking relatively simple, slow aircraft, dare I say, but they're kind of down rooting around right there next to the troops. And as you alluded, probably subject to threats, if it was a significant surface to air threat, they'd probably be a a bit of risk. But can you just give us a quick description of what we consider light attack these days?
2: Well, you ask 20 people, you'll get 20 different answers there. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Lots of different ways to define that. Like if you Google light attack aircraft. One of the hits you'll get is, you know, the top 10 light attack aircraft in the world. And all but two of them are jet powered. Several of them are trainers slash light attack. So they're trainers that you can make into a light attack aircraft. A4 and A7 are not on that list, by the way. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't consider them light attack. (laughs) You know, at some point, if you're going to have that discussion, you need to talk about something that can carry X amount or less Of ordinance has X number or less of hard points, you know things like that. But I think probably the best way to couch it is: what can a less wealthy partner nation operate and maintain? So right there, you've excluded F sixteen Gripen, F thirty five. You've excluded all of the quote, Gucci, unquote, stuff that we can afford. And most of our partner nations can, a lot of our partner nations can afford. They could buy six of these things, you know, six F-16s, but in, in three or four years, they can fly one of them because they can't afford to sustain them right? or they've crashed them or they can't maintain their runways and they fought out all the injuries You know, there's a million reasons, but what you're left with after you eliminate that is pretty much light attack unless you throw in some old Russian Su-25s or something that they don't want anymore, but eventually that's too expensive to operate anymore. You see what I mean?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So in other words, any jet is by its very nature going to be more expensive and more difficult to maintain, arguably, I'm brushing a broad stroke here, than any prop or turboprop.
2: More expensive per hour. Absolutely. Okay. That's true. Okay. But I don't think that excludes some light jets from this discussion we're having. Mm Mm-hmm but they are more expensive to operate and maintain for the most part than turboprops are, for example.
0: All right, so what we're talking about then is the events that don't make all the headlines all the time. And there's not a lot of controversy around these aircraft, right? So you've got, like you said, the peer threats, which for the United States these days is still Russia and probably increasingly China. So you've got to have the ability to go toe to toe with them. But around the rest of the world, we have all these sort of low grade conflicts in places in Africa and the Middle East and places where we're just trying to keep what insurgents at bay or armed gangs or thugs. I mean, so we need armed aircraft that can go handle engagements in those environments. Is that a summary that would work?
2: That is getting to the point, Jello. Okay. And the other part of that equation that you have segued into so nicely is that I can go to those countries and do that with A-10, F-16, Strike Eagle, F-35. I can, if I choose to. Mm -hmm. But if I do that, you know, there's a huge tail that goes with it. It's an American presence. It's a very big statement. And in those cases, I am fighting in lieu of the host nation rather than alongside the host nation.
0: Because they're not also going to have A-10s and F-16s and F-15 strike eagles. Yep.
2: I am their proxy. And then we get into the, okay, well we got this target from these guys and what it turns out to be is some warlord wants his warlord next door to get struck by F-16s. And that's what happens. So, (laughs) you know, that's a cynical example, but you you understand what I'm talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Straight out of Hollywood. Now, if I take a squadron of, let's say, 12 A-29s or to AT-6s or whatever, and I go to that nation, they have a similar capability there. There are A-29s in many, many countries around the world and not so nice places. Now, My footprint is I'm fighting alongside those guys. I'm helping them do their own thing rather than taking their place in the military portion of this conflict. In other words, right. Right. If I take the a 10 over there, I'm clubbing all the targets for them. Whereas we're sharing the load as far as it goes. And I have a, a similar capability, more common ground, I guess is the right way to put that. Yeah. Right now. Now, the other thing is, as we've already talked about, getting 12 A29s and operating those things for a month is pennies on the dollar compared to 12 F16s or even 12 A10s operating for a month in an austere location. And when you start talking about austere locations, dry lake beds, dirt fields, things like that, you know, light attack, particularly turboprop light attack, is ideally suited for that. Whereas uh, turbo fans, turbo jets, not so much, other than the A10, not so much. Yeah. So there's a lot more to it than just, well, we can't fight China with this airplane.
0: Right. Of course. So this question might be above your pay grade, but I'll try it anyway. How much of this do you think is bigger picture strategic thinking on the part of either the united states if that's applicable or the west or whatever so in other words right you look back through history there's all kinds of examples of what you just stated hey indochina we're going to come in and fight the communists for you in a sense right or with you supposedly but it ended up being for you and it didn't turn out so well and we've been involved in skirmishes all over the world wearing our own colors is some of this in your opinion or again if you want to punt you can but is some of this sort of posturing in a sense on this case of the United States of, look, we don't want to go around and fight everyone's battles anymore. So instead let's equip and train people to take care of it themselves because we don't need roving bands of thugs or drug Lords, or (laughs) I don't know what to call or generalize all these groups as I'm not as well versed on that, but is that part of it? Do you think
2: nefarious actors? Let's go with that.
0: Okay. Perfect. (laughs) Reader's digest word right there. Good.
2: You're welcome. So you're getting to the third level of what I was going to talk about. All right. Thanks for reading the script I gave you. Just yeah, that's kidding. That's right, yeah. So the other option, rather than having a significant... So go back to the scenario I just described to have a squadron or a deployment of 12 A-29s to country X. It assumes that you have a force of A-29s ready to deploy. And there's a certain bills associated with that. And you have to have certain numbers of things because those will be in high demand. I'd rather fly A-29s In Country X, then fly the wings off my very expensive F-35s, you know, Mm -hmm. boring holes in the sky, swatting flies with sledgehammers. The other part of this is maybe I don't need a giant squadron or wing or two wings of light attack. Maybe I just need a robust combat air advisor force, which we used to have, you alluded to Southeast Asia Uh, We've all heard Air America, the Ravens. We've heard those stories. You know, we had a lot of people who leveraged a lot of very low-end technology to train some partners, Cambodians, Laotians, Vietnamese. And the people we trained did a very good job. Their governments were corrupt and fell apart, sort of like the, well, I'll just say (laughs) we may or may not have repeated that at some point. But the point is the people we trained were really good at their job. Those Cambodians flying T-26s were really good at dropping bombs with that airplane and they did really good work. So the other option is rather than having a bunch of wings of A-29s that can deploy all over the world of these hotspots is have a smaller number, not a tiny number, but a smaller number of light attack and a cadre of guys that I can keep trained. And now I just send the guy and maybe one or two airplanes to embed with that host country air force, whatever they're flying. Mm-hmm. So I've got a cadre of combat air advisor professionals who are light attack at the core and who can go to wherever the place is that we need them and help that country do its own thing rather than ha- us having a big footprint. Yeah, See, that kind of ties back to what you were just talking about. Maybe yeah. I don't need to go in there with the sledgehammer. I can just go help them on a lower scale. So there's three levels, right? I can go in with the big guns, I can go in with a force of my own, an operational force of my own and fight alongside them, or I can go in with air advisors and fight and embed with them and help them fight their own fight.
0: And each of those, like you were saying, its own support requirements, its own diplomatic issues, et cetera.
2: Sorry, I interrupted. Absolutely. Its own training requirements.
0: All right. So I still love this quote by the chief of staff, General Brown, about you don't drive your Ferrari every day in reference to the F-35. So if that's the case and sticking with our discussion here, Spam, let's keep talking about the Toyota Priuses and Ford F-150s of the world that are getting it done Monday through Saturday. You already (laughs) mentioned some of them, right? So we've got the A29. Let's start with that. But you also talked about the T6. So let's start with the A29. And I guess we call it what? The Super Tacano?
2: Super Tacano.
0: All right. What is that thing?
2: All right. Well, it's a, an Embraer product built in Brazil. They developed it through the 80s. They had the short Tucano that they were using for a trainer. Okay. They actually got involved in the j Pass. Do you remember that? We were trying to come up with a common trainer for the Navy and the Air Force back in the 80s.
0: I do. Yeah. That ended up being the T-6, right?
2: Sure. That's what spit out of it eventually. That's right. Okay. There was some Fairchild offshoot in the beginning that everybody went for and it fell apart and couldn't. Spin and things like that. Anyway, so we got sidetracked. But they got involved in that and decided to beef up their Takano, short Takano. And what they did was they added fuselage in front, fuselage in back, much bigger motor, more robust airframe, and eventually became a different aircraft. It's the Embraer 314 now versus the 312, which is a short Okay, And I think it first flew in 1999, something like that. So it's a relatively new airframe. And the ones we're flying here are... Right off the assembly line, like a new car. But it's a pretty beefy airplane that was designed to do attack things and actually air-to-air things to help the Brazilians police their enormous Amazon borders with other countries. Radar, day-night intercepts, air-to-air missiles, uh, guns, the whole thing. And they still do that today. They have them stationed at uh, air bases out in the far reaches of their country to keep that drug traffic down. It's really Mm. what they're after. But anyway... It also happens to be a really good light attack aircraft. Five hardpoints uh, can carry external fuel. It's got internal guns, two internal guns, one on each wing, which is nice because now you don't have to use an external station for a gun pod. Carry 500-pound weapons, LGBs, Paveway twos, 500-pounders and 250-pounders, which are kind of nice. Uh, shoot all kinds of rockets, any kind of 2.75 rockets you can load in. You can shoot, including AGR-20 laser-guided rockets. And it's always got the gun with uh, 500 rounds, 250 in each wing, which is nice if you are all out of other ideas.
0: (laughs) Sometimes that's your primary weapon, yeah.
2: Yep. It's also armored. You can get missile warning systems, chaff and flare. You know, I mean, it's not, it's vulnerable for sure in a high end threat. You're not going to go out flying against SA 15s and frontline Soviet or Chinese air defenses, that's silly. That's not yeah. what it's for.
0: But hold on, because I wanted to ask you this anyway, because even a just a simple shoulder-fired surf-to-air missile would be effective against it, wouldn't it? Isn't
2: that a concern? It is a concern, of course. But you have flares, you have self-protection capability on the airplane. Okay. Without getting into a classified discussion, it's not that easy. Yeah. It does not have a big heat signature. So, okay. And that's from people that we've talked to who have tried it. <laughs> okay. You know, if I've got a reduced threat environment, we like to call it, right? Mm-hmm. Where a small arms, AAA, Taliban, right? They got RPGs, maybe 12.7 and a bunch of small arms. So you avoid the 3,500 feet and below regime and you're relatively immune. You know, the Afghans flew these things in combat for f- almost five years. And with the exception of one or two, you know, half inch holes in the airplane, they n- never lost an airplane to combat, never had one seriously damaged in combat. So And they were flying every day, every day, seven days a week. And neither did we, right? When we were over there, we didn't lose anything. That thread is ideal. And by the way, that thread is also ubiquitous throughout the planet. If you probably had a map of the world and you colored red all the places that you really shouldn't fly light attack airplanes, it wouldn't be a very big spot of red, right?
0: Right. But there's a lot of spots that don't have the red, like you said.
2: Absolutely. And spots where we're going to be engaged until we change our mind about being in the United States and police right. and the rest of the world, we're going to be
1: there. All
0: right. So you've got this aircraft that can carry a lot of the weapons. We've talked about it quite frequently on this show. I mean, laser guided, GPS guided, forward firing rockets and guns, but it's pretty cheap, right? I mean, these things are, looks like my research shows nine to $14 million and probably very cheap to operate. I mean, so they're not going to be going Mach 2, but they don't need to. They sure don't. Cheap and simple and relatively, what, easy to fly, I imagine?
2: Very easy to fly. And we took guys in these programs who literally had only flown like what we would consider in the Air Force introduction to flying training. What's your equivalent in the Navy? Like guys go to Pueblo, Colorado in the Air Force and they fly the DA-20, get some hours, get some time, and then they go to pilot training. Do you have some kind of equivalent like that? Yeah, they started school? it
0: after I went through, but I think it's called IFI or something where they give you some initial just to see if you don't puke every time kind of thing.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's smart, right? So we got guys that literally had that experience, 172s and maybe a little bit of Cessna 208 time. And they were coming to us and we're teaching them by the time they left, you know, they're full up mission ready wingmen in the A29 hmm. breaking stuff and killing people was their job and they were good at it. Bad people, yeah. Absolutely. And operating as a two-ship element, the whole thing, starting from never been upside down, never pulled more than two Gs in their life. So absolutely, it's an easy plane to fly. You can argue, you can teach just about anybody to do it if you had enough time and space. But these guys were doing the job, so it's an easy plane to fly, absolutely. You said not everybody needs an F-16. You don't need an F-16 or an A-10 to fight most of these places. You don't, and it popped into my mind. The quote from Bull Durham, Remember that movie uh-huh. when Crash Davis is talking to Nuke, the pitcher? Nuke's bragging about his stereo and he says, dude, you don't need a quadraphonic blow pump. What you need is a curveball. And <laughs> <laughs> that's precisely what we're talking about here, right?
4: Mm-hmm.
2: I don't want to be politically naive here, right? We'd never needed B-1s to fly CAST missions in Afghanistan. Again, I'm also not naive. We did not deploy B-1s to Al-Udeed because we needed them in Afghanistan, we deployed them to send a message to maybe other actors in that mm-hmm. theater. I understand that. However, the blocking and tackling of those missions probably ought to be something that's appropriate, something we can afford. You said affordable. The number I hear most often is approximately $1,000 an hour to operate. 800 to to $1,000 an hour to operate, which is pennies on the dollar, right?
0: Yeah, that's peanuts compared to a lot of the aircraft we talk about today. Super Hornet is. is like what $15,000 an hour so yeah sure Well, but also, right, this airplane can land in, what, 1,000 or 2,000 feet? And on, like you said earlier, austere conditions?
2: Yes. We've tested on uh, dirt strips. The landing gear is pretty robust. The wheels Mm -hmm. are big, so you got a lot of prop clearance on the nose, which is nice. Yeah. You know, the sensor ball hangs, if you've ever seen the pictures, you may have looked at some pictures, the sensor ball hangs, if you have one, it hangs behind the prop, behind the nose gear, in front of the centerline station, so down there close to the ground. One of our guys even did a test out here in Colorado. They landed up at altitude on a dirt strip. He went to the end and he power turned, you know, pretty narrow things. He had to push the power up, turned around, took off again, not a scratch on the sensor, which was nice. So yes, it has a lot of capability to do that.
0: Okay. But the super Tecano, and you may have more you want to tell about it. And if so, go ahead, but that's not the only player in this game. Is that right?
2: No, of course not. Again, we're back to how do you define light attack. The other Turbo props out there that you hear the most about probably are the AT-6 Textron and then the AT-802, the air tractor entry. There's actually more than one version of that thing out there, but a tail dragger, crop duster looking thing. You, you know what I'm talking about?
0: <laughs> actually, I do not, but I'll have to look it up.
2: <laughs> AT-802, take a look at it. Okay. You know, it's a tail dragger, so there's challenges there, but mm-hmm. it's a big airplane, a lot bigger than a A-29 or an AT-6. And it carries a lot of stuff. Crop dusters take off with a lot of weight, but they're not meant to land with a lot of weight. So it can potentially be a handful there, but that's a discussion for another time.
0: Yeah. I literally just Googled it uh, here spamming on my computer and there's a picture of a gray looking crop duster with bombs and then a yellow crop duster with actual chemicals or whatever coming out the bottom. So you you weren't kidding. This thing is an adapted crop duster.
2: It is probably... The second most common use for it, besides crop dusting, is firefighting. Does a lot of that oh. out west? Absolutely. There's uh, quite a few companies on those things.
0: And you had a chance to fly the T six, but is the AT six
2: different? I mean, probably a dumb question, but so I flew. Believe it or not, when I was the ops group commander at Davis-Monthan as a colonel, they were going around the country with two AT sixes and doing an experiment. And they stopped. They went to DM and Davis-Monthan. Yeah, Davis-Monthan, and they were analyzing trying to collect data on people executing different missions in this AT-6. So no kidding. They got like Navy helicopter guys and army attack aviation guys and Air Force ISR guys. And they sucked me into it to go, we want you to go out and escort helicopters in a CSAR with this airplane. Okay. So I did one mission in a kind of dumb, this is before I flew T-6s ever. This is the first time I've ever been in one. So I got one mission just to learn how to fly the airplane, where are the buttons, and how do you make the HUD work, and those kind of things, obviously with an instructor in the back. And then I went out and flew a mission. I was Sandy 3, and there was an A-10 guy from DM. He was Sandy 1, and we had uh, HA-60 helicopters. And I had saddle up and running, and we could see everybody on the link. And I'm out there escorting helicopters, talking to Sandy 1, and we executed the CSAR, and I did some suppression around the survivor during the hover cover at the terminal phases of the— engagement. So flew the AT-6 on those two instances. And since then, no interaction with the AT-6, you know, as an S and C guys, those are the other guys, you know, so, okay. but it has some good capability. It's a little bit smaller, a uh, little bit less robust than the A29. And I'm not going to get into the, which one's better and all that probably not appropriate for me to say in this case, but have flown a couple of times in the AT-6.
0: Gotcha. Well, I mean, obviously, you have an allegiance to your employer, so we can all figure out where your loyalties and everything will lie. But okay, so the point is No matter what
2: I say, nobody will believe me. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah, that's true. We learned that with Billy on the uh, F 35, even though he's (laughs) long removed from uh, Lockheed Martin. But okay, so the point is there are other contenders. uh, Getting back to my example, there's the Toyota Prius and the Ford F 150 that most of the world is driving all day long, uh, all week long, and getting the job done. And so we'll get to what the future of these aircraft are, whether there will be a fly off or a selection or whatever, but all right. So we have these aircraft, what kind of missions are they doing? I mean, I think we can guess that they're doing obviously some sort of interdiction air to ground, but can you elaborate on that? And are there other missions like maybe recon or
2: something? Everybody wants just like us. They don't want something that can only do one thing, right? One trick pony. Exactly. Nobody can afford that. Least of all, I'll just say third world countries for general purposes, but sure. you know what I mean? Yep. They want something that can go out and do some ISR, something that can do some, okay, you see something, now attack it. Something that can go out and work with another platform, maybe a King Air or a of PC-12 or something that they have, go to where that guy is, and then be able to correlate what that guy sees with their eyeballs and go, okay, yep, yeah, I see it. Okay, good. Now kill that. And they also want something that can go out and work with their ground forces, which is a whole different level of coordination, as you understand. Mm -hmm. So all of these aircraft, and I meant to say the avionics suite in the A-29C, the one we're building for AFSOC is really robust and it can be, Mm -hmm. but you really need a couple of radios that work. You know, datalink would be great in these countries for their purposes, but you need a sensor that can work. Any need guys who know how to fly the airplane and make the airplane do what they need it to do with delivering weapons, whether they're precision weapons or whether you're delivering unguided weapons in close proximity to friendly forces or civilians on the ground.
0: And most of these aircraft appear to be two-seaters. Are they generally flown in that capacity or are they flown?
2: Most of them are. I think that 802 is usually single-seat. and then yeah, look like it. There's two-seat versions of it. Mm-hmm. for sure, for sensor operators and things like that. Now, the A-29 has two seats, but I'll tell you this. The Dash-1 is, uh, what is it, Chapter 6, crew responsibilities not applicable on this aircraft. <laughs> so <laughs> it is designed to fly from the front cockpit. Okay. But you can also train with a guy in the rear cockpit. And you can put a sensor on the airplane, and when you do that, you have a side stick controller, a pilot control unit we call on the right side that controls the sensor in the rear cockpit. The front cockpit guy can control the sensor with hotas strictly without anybody in the rear cockpit you don't have to have anybody in the rear cockpit to employ this airplane. Yeah. But a lot of countries when they're first learning will put a guy in the rear cockpit first, but they'll put a pilot back there. Nobody sure. can afford sizos or wizos or rios like we can.
4: Yeah.
0: All right. You threw out the term dash one. I hope most people understand, but that's basically the what operators manual for the The basic, right? Yep.
2: Okay. Absolutely.
0: All right. And so we've already talked about, you work for Sierra Nevada corporation. What other, well, let's talk about your company, but who are all players in this space? Are there a lot of folks in this or is it relatively narrow?
2: There's a lot going on (laughs) within the government right now, within the U S government, within the department of Defense. Okay. Most of this is focused on AFSOC right now.
0: Air Force Special Operations Command?
2: Correct. Okay. Have you have you heard of, seen news reports or anything on the Armed Overwatch program?
0: I've heard that expression, but I couldn't tell you what it means.
2: Okay. I can't talk about the competition because we're in it. Okay. Or specifics about it. But in general, AFSOC put a call out for an aircraft that can go do some ISR and do some attack as well if it needs to. And they're talking about, and this is open source, you know, doesn't have anything to do with the competition or anybody's proposal. They're looking to buy 75 of these things. So you can look that up on your own. Everybody else can do the same thing. Sierra Nevada's entry into that is the MC-145B Wiley Coyote. Believe it or not, there's a great video of it on YouTube company told me anything that you talk about that's in that video is okay. But uh, you can YouTube MC145B, and you'll get a YouTube video, a five-minute thing that tells you about uh, what we've put forth as our entry into the competition. It's really capable of airplane. Two engines, high wing. Uh, I think it's the only one in the competition with two engines. Anyway, great capability for weapons, great capability, ISR. They can throw people out the back. You can put weapons back there and put them out. I think the video even includes JASM. As something you can employ from the rear of that airplane. So wow, it
0: sounds like an OV-10 Bronco almost.
2: Well, it's a little bit bigger than that, and there is a mini Bronco in the competition. You should look at it; it's a pretty okay. interesting looking little thing. As far as light attack in general in the Air Force right now, that's mm-hmm. the only thing going on outside of the three airplanes that we're developing for AFSOC right now—the A-29s that we're developing for AFSOC and the two AT-6s that are left over from the light attack experiment the Air Force was doing back about five or six years ago. What everybody, all the vendors want, you know, all the companies and the companies like mine and and like mine are waiting for is the Air Force to make some light attack airplane a program of record, meaning now it has long-term funding and, you know, it's a program now like the A-10 or the F-16 and it's got a management office and all kinds of other things that come along with being a program of record. At that point now garden reserve units can look at the airplane and buy it and and that opens the floodgates. Yeah. We're back to your original question now though. <laughs> is it enough of a priority?
0: And that's what I was just about to touch on because I would argue the F thirty five probably almost has too much attention, but is there an issue with getting enough attention on something like this? I mean, do people take it
2: seriously? Well, it's not sexy, Jell O. <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: Neither am I, but I'm getting the job done, so, uh, you know.
2: You are absolutely getting the job done, brother. (laughs) Going to South Sudan and crapping in a hole in the ground and living under the wing of your airplane for three months at a time, even if it is a light attack airplane, even if it's affordable, and that's not too sexy to think about, right? Right. But is it important to our national security or not? Yeah. Beyond that, is it important enough to make this investment? Now, we haven't touched on one thing yet. That is another ancillary benefit to this. What's that? You've heard, I know, just like everybody else has, about pilot shortages in the Air Force, Navy, in mm-hmm. the Department of Defense, and specifically fighter pilot shortages. Right. They don't grow on trees, right? You can't just snap your fingers and fix that problem. It's a very complicated problem. But a possible benefit of light attack is not only, jello. are they relatively cheap to acquire... Sustain and operate. You can also fly the crap out of them. You can fly three or four times a day. You know, you got a squadron of 24 of these things. You can fly 14, turn 12, turn 12, turn 10, all in the same period of daylight. And think about the experience you're getting for some young guys who are in a squadron like that. They are flying their butts off. Mm -hmm. And one of our big problems with fixing a fighter pilot shortage in particular is I cannot just turn the fire up at pilot training and make more pilots and by proxy more fighter pilots if I don't have anywhere to put them. Because then all I've done, let me use the factory scenario, right? I'm Mm -hmm. at the factory and I'm making widgets and the guy to my right is pushing widgets as fast as he can and I'm the production guy. The guy to my left is the recruiting guy. He's sending me guys to pilot training and I'm turning those widgets into widgets that need to go to the right. Mm -hmm. Well, the dude to my right is slow. He only works three hours a day because we don't have enough places for these young kids to go. So they just pile up and they're useless and they time out and they don't want to be in the air force. And as soon as they can get out, they do, you know? So this light attack thing can potentially, if you can invest initially in the number of personnel it takes to stand it up, you have a way to absorb guys, to experience them. And then if you want to, to send them on to a fourth gen plus or fifth gen fighter without having to pay a giant basic training bill, because he already knows how to do sensor management. He already knows how to do link. He already knows how to fly formation. He already knows how to be a fighter pilot. All he needs to know now is how to fly an F-35 and how to use those sensors. Right, You don't have to start from the beginning like you do a pipeline guy, a UPT graduate, a flight school graduate. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That course would be short. It would be a transition course, not a B course, we would call it in the Air Force. That's a big benefit, I think, to light attack. And it doesn't cost nearly as much as flying an F-16 does.
0: No, it doesn't. But again, I'm not necessarily saying I support this outlook, but might you have a recruiting challenge with that? Because, you know, especially having this podcast, I hear from people all the time. Oh yeah, thanks. I love the show. I want to join the air force and fly the F-16, or I want to join the Navy and fly the F-35C. How many people are you going to get that want to go down low, slow and dirty and and fly these things? And again, I'm not saying that's the right attitude, but like you said earlier, right? It's not the most sexiest. It's not the most glamorous. So are we going to have a messaging challenge if we get more and more into this? Do you
2: think? Well, my personal experience, I joined the Air Force to fly Eagles. So that's what I wanted to do.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: I went to an air show when I was 10 years old at Columbus Air Force Base, and it was a probably an F-15A, I'm sure, because I'm old. <laughs> Brother, he got to the end of the runway. It was a demo, you know, a 15 demo. And oh, sure. In the A model, there's no telling how light that thing was compared to what it is today. And you know what he did, right? He got to the end of the runway and he stood that thing on his tail and he went out of sight. That was impressive. That's Mm -hmm. still impressive. Mm -hmm. And so that was why I joined the Air Force, why I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy. I wanted to fly. I wanted to be that guy, right? Well, then I went to pilot training and it actually came down to Eagle or A-10 and I picked the A-10. I just connected with the mission a little better and never, ever, ever regretted it, not for one second. So I think... That is not going to be a problem. I think guys are going to, oh, I'm going to go fly A-20. Because when I went to pilot training, it was like, oh, crap, I got an A-10. And then three years later, not one single one of those guys that said that ever said that again in their life, right? Mm -hmm. There were cats and dogs who wanted to go do something else and did eventually, but that's pretty rare. Yeah. So not disparaging any airframe in the Air Force. They're all awesome. And if I'd have gotten an F-16 out of pilot training, I'd be saying the same thing about it, I'm sure. Mm Mm-hmm but I don't think that's going to be a problem recruiting wise.
0: Well, I hope you're right. Right. Because like you said, you get, Experience for relatively cheap. You have a place for these folks to go when they get done with training because you hit on something very important. Is if you make a widget out of metal, it can sit on the shelf for a long time before it rusts or corrodes or whatever. But like a musician, a pilot is perishable. Right. There's skills right. that need to be exercised day in, day out. And if you're not doing that, now you're putting the mission at risk, you're putting people at risk, and mishaps go up. And and like you said, there's dissatisfaction yep. and people want to leave. And so I, yeah, I get asked that a Lot. What's up with the pilot shortage? And I say, well, you've got some dysfunction in the military, frankly, but also you have a pretty good economy where the airlines are hiring and they were prior to COVID and they are now again. And so why should I be gone for my family? And especially in the Navy, where you're doing six or seven months of a deployment, you're home for two or three, and then you're right back on the ship. That's hard to sustain for the family. So I think you're right. And I hope that someone's listening to what you're saying. Because I think that's a good way to take a look at what the military is doing, where we're doing it and how we're doing it and who we're putting in those seats. And I think that's one way to do it. So is that your kind of, uh, dare I say, pie in the sky? I don't want to be insulting. Or is that actually where the military is moving, do you think?
2: Are you talking about the light attack wing concept?
0: Yeah, like putting people into that more. And then, like you said, maybe that's where they start off. Almost like a FAPE in a sense, right?
2: Sure. I know what you're saying. I think what I've heard, at least public sources, is this is fighter pilot specific. Of course, you know, that's your podcast. So this fighter pilot specific portion of this, I think the Air Force is now looking at the T-7 or something like the T-7, the T-38 replacement, if you're familiar with that. I am. Okay. The Boeing product. They're looking at that or something similar to that as what we would call a companion trainer. So now you go to get that experience that I was talking about. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: So you go to pilot training, and they're talking about two birds with one stone here. You go to pilot training, you go to IFF, Introduction to Fighter Fundamentals, lead-in training. Then you go to your companion trainer squadron. So they're trying to get after the adversary support issue and this experiencing issue with the same cadre of people. Uh So let's say you go to Tyndall Air Force Base, where we have Raptors who have a large appetite for adversary support, you know, I need to have red air, and it's better if it's not F-22s flying red air against themselves because that's really freaking expensive yeah, and not necessary and actually not a very good replicator for just about anything. But you have a squadron of T-7s. They're using T-38s right now with contractors and GS pilots. But now you have a squadron of these T-7s or whatever their aircraft is, and these young pilots with a flight commander and a squadron commander and all that leadership, etc., And they go out and they fly these adversary air missions. Here's your dance card. We're going to do intercepts today. We're going to do 2v1 ACM today. Here's what I need you to do. You know, that kind of stuff. And then by the time you are ready to go to your FTU and go to an F-22 or an F-35, you have all this experience, all this background, and your training bill at that FTU is going to be smaller. Yeah. So I think that's kind of the concept that I'm hearing that they might be going to now. Hmm. Don't quote don't quote me listen to me yeah. you're going to put this on the internet but <laughs> you can quote me on that but yeah you you just quoted yourself yeah sure
0: you know not to get on too big a tangent here but i flew a lot of adversary support in my career and when i was younger it was easy and fun. I mean, you could show up last minute at the brief, get the card, get the quick rundown, do the training rules and go. And when you got back, Hey, here's where I was, here was what I saw and did. And that's the end of it. At the end of my career, it got so difficult because they wanted so much out of the red air players that actually didn't find. I enjoyed it because I was just at that point too old and (laughs) incapable of of doing it well. So I, I guess if that's all these young guys are doing and they have obviously the appetite, that might be a different story, but then I'm also thinking now you're, frontline squadrons that deploy are all going to be generally older and that you might have an issue with people timing out depending on what the obligation is after you get your wings. So a lot to unpack there. And maybe we could do that over a beer another time there. Sure. Sam, but just getting back on point and thinking about maybe even wrapping this up. So the aircraft, we talked about what it carries and how simple and cheap and easy. And I added rugged and durable here on this list. Mm-hmm. What about though, inside the cockpit, as far as I flew the T-34 Bravo or Charlie rather turbo mentor, it was very basic airplane. And I understand the T-6 is pretty nice. I mean, ejection seats, hydraulics, oxygen, et cetera. Sure. But what are they putting in these things for the sake of the aircrew? And you hinted on some of them before you talked about, I think you said saddle and a few other things, but mm-hmm. are they going to have some pretty nice accoutrements, if you will, for the pilots?
2: Yeah. So even the ones that we export three Big multifunction displays, you know, glass displays that you would mm-hmm. immediately be familiar with. Oh, yeah. Hotas, very good hotas, stick and throttle for operating whatever your sensor of interest is, whether it's your HUD or your moving map or your ball or whatever you're using. Mm-hmm. It's very good. And the other thing that's really good about it is it's designed to use with MVGs. Uh-huh. So flying at night with MVGs and these things, it's actually a very good, I was surprised at how good it was actually when I first flew nights in this airplane. Like I said, it's not a new concept to have a propeller driving an airplane, but this airplane is new. One of the things we do, you know, the obligatory S&C pitch, we'll assemble the aircraft for you. Whatever the customer wants, we'll modify it for them. So obviously, Avsoc wants a little more high-end avionics in theirs, and that's what they're getting. The export versions, you know, we do an FMS case, so we do whatever the government says that we can do for the customers downrange, mm-hmm. so they get their aircraft modified like they want it. But in all cases, this thing is pretty nice. It's set up like any fighter pilot would appreciate, I think. There are a couple of things that we all are like, man, can we fix that, please? You know, but it's like that in every airplane that I've ever flown.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. There's always something.
2: From a fighter pilot's perspective with, you know, 5,000 hours of flying, things like that. It's pretty awesome to fly and fun. Yeah. And pretty easy to employ.
0: Sounds like it. Yeah. Probably has pretty good endurance.
2: Endurance. Yeah. So, when we ferry them, you know, the other thing we do is we modify the airplane, we train the maintenance guys, we train the pilots, and then we do sustainment for that country. But at the end of the program, it recently at Moody Air Force Base, we finished the Nigeria's training. We deliver the aircraft to them. We put three tanks on it. You can go about a 1,000 miles comfortably. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a four hour sortie. That's long enough to be sitting there anyway. Not irrefuelable. Nobody's gotten that yet or has asked for that. So <laughs> not with a big
0: old spinning prop out there. No, I think.
2: that's a little bit of an engineering challenge. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. And so, yeah, I mean, obviously this thing isn't tearing up the speed way, if you will. Right. I mean, nope. what are you guys running around at? Are you even willing to say
2: for cross country, about two forty true, just like any other plane. If I don't need to go fast, I don't. So, cause it saves gas and everything's in kilograms in uh, an hour or kilograms of gas, but it's about three kilograms per gallon. That's what I'm trying to say. There's the math. When we're flying around like in a hold, like over a target area, and I'm looking with the pod or whatever up at altitude, and I'm not worried about the threat, I can pull it back to like 200 kilograms an hour, which is 70 gallons an hour, which is pretty low fuel flow. Yeah. And I can stay there for a pretty long time, especially if I'm just looking and I can get up higher, you know, I can probably pull it back less than that. And I can stay on station, you know, hundred miles away, probably stay on station for a couple of hours, which is pretty good. Even if you are going slow.
0: Well, and that's one of the benefits of
2: a turboprop. Absolutely. And it's kind of hard to hear if you get up pretty high. I went out with the Nigerians on the ground out of the MOA because they wanted to do some, hey, can you hear this airplane? And I said, well, let's go out in the MOA and see while guys are doing their missions or whatever. You know, it depends on a lot of things when you're on the ground, but it's not as easy to see or hear as you think.
0: Oh, I imagine. All right. Well, cool, man. So let me think. What's left? What's the future hold for this community, if you will. And again, I don't even know what we'll end up calling this episode, but the light attack, yeah. what's the future worldwide. And then let's circle back to the future rather for the air force and whether the Navy or Marine Corps are, are looking at it at all, but let's start with the rest of the world. And, and if you want to touch a little bit more on what you do there at Sierra Nevada, I mean, cause you guys are out, you're the ones who are kind of facing the customer in a sense.
2: Worldwide. Who knows? I think all over the place, there are a lot of smaller nations out there who are looking for their own increased autonomy. And they're probably like the Nigerians, like the Lebanese, like the Afghans in the past. We're looking to the more I can do for myself, the less I need China or Russia or the United States standing on my air base and doing things for me. So I think there's an appetite for this out there and you can look around, you can Google or Wikipedia, There are a lot of countries who are looking to buy light attack or combination trainer attack type airplanes out there. So I think there's a burgeoning market. A lot of those countries are talking s and C. I won't get any specifics, but there are customers out there. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's going away.
0: What about the U.S.? Is there an appetite for increasing this? Obviously, there is at AFSOC, but is that special? Or is the Navy and the Marine Corps also considering?
2: The most light attack applications you see right now, and underutilized, in my opinion, is the corollary to adversary support is we need JTAC support as well. The Marines and the Air Force need that. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: We got thousands of airmen and Marines out there who need X number of controls every year. We don't have the A-10, F-18. We don't have the numbers of people and aircraft and availability to go out and fulfill all those. If that's all they did, we still wouldn't get there. So there's a lot of contract capability out there, a lot of contract money on the table to go out and provide that support to these users. I think that's a big market. There's a lot of contracting issues that are going along with that that it's pretty difficult to do from a contractor's perspective. And maybe there's some things that could be laid flat by the U.S. government to make that a little more attractive and usable. But if they do, that's a huge market, I think. Yeah. By proxy, then, the Air Force Marines might see something that they want might see a little more utility than what they see right now, in my opinion.
0: You know, the Navy obviously used to have A-1 Sky Raiders on the flight decks. I don't see anything like this coming back to a carrier flight deck anytime nope. soon. But as we've tried to identify today, it's a relatively, I don't know if I should say limited role, but the point is, is this is a capability that is needed around the world and not everywhere, but in most of the world So there are people like the Sierra Nevada Corporation and the Embraer folks making the A29 that are essentially answering the need. Is that a fair summary?
2: That's absolutely fair.
0: Yeah. There's one question I haven't asked you about the A29, by the way. I have to ask you, what's the caliber of the guns and the wings? 50 cal. (laughs) Okay, good. We got to stick to our roots here. You know,
2: this is fun stuff. No, it's good. I wish I had eight like the P-47 or (laughs) even six like the P-51, but... Two is better than zero. And they're actually pretty good. Pretty accurate.
0: Yeah. Too. Oh, and I'm sure, yeah, modern weapons are probably better with two of those. You got
2: to get close. But, you know, if you're shooting the gun, everybody knows you're there. You're not trying to be sneaky anymore. All
0: right. So how soon until the Air Force, you said there's some talk about a program, a record, or is there a decision coming up? Or what's the latest, if you will?
2: Just like you, Jello, I'm going to just be watching okay. the competition, the uh armed overwatch competition and see what happens there it really is a AFSOC SOCOM SECDEF kind of chain of command there that's making these decisions and if SOCOM pushes it AFSOC will advocate the little word of contract and we'll see what happens I'm curious to see and I hope it goes well for my corporation but no matter what happens I think that will be good for light attack in general across the planet
0: yeah okay Well, so that's the future for light attack. What's the future for spam? Are you going to keep playing this a game for a while? (laughs)
2: Look, man, it is hard to argue with sitting at my desk at Moody Air Force Base, 2.5 miles away from the main bomb circle on Grand Bay Range, and then getting out in my A-29 and going out there and dropping six BDUs and shooting 14 rockets and shooting 200 rounds of 50 cal and then coming back and figuring out who won the bet. It's pretty hard to argue with that as a retirement job, right?
0: (laughs) You did that as a young captain 30 years ago and you're still doing it. It never gets old, does it?
2: Absolutely. So I'm not complaining. The job's rewarding. I love teaching young guys. I mean, who doesn't love turning a young guy into a killer, right? I mean, that's essentially what we do. Maybe that's a little course for some of your sensitive they, readers, but I
0: was going to say there could be some people in certain parts of California who don't appreciate that, but most of the rest of the, my listeners do. So
2: we got to have them.
0: <laughs> yes, we do. They yes, are necessary.
2: So it's a very rewarding job and I love it. And the, the company's great. And it's hard to argue with it. Yeah. I'm pretty content
0: awesome spam well you've been a lot of fun we've been at this for a while and I want to be respectful of your time and uh, we got a little business to wrap up after we hang up anyway and so before we get to our standard final fighter pilot podcast question what did I not ask you? And feel free, by the way, to brag on your company. I mean, they loaned you <laughs> to us and we're not paying you and, and they're not paying us, but what did I not ask you about this? And to be honest, you know, the listener is going to say, what are you talking about? I know what the episode is called, but that's because they're going to hear it after I do steps seven, True. eight, and nine, and I'm at step one right now. So right. I don't know if we're going to call this light attack or the A 29 or overwatch. You've said that a couple of times, but what is the listener and maybe even taxpayers, dare I say? need to know about Light Attack, the A-29, the program that you're working in? What else is there that I maybe didn't ask you?
2: Well, not a lot you didn't ask me. I guess we'll get to the call sign in a little while. But yep. the company is U.S., obviously U.S. company, headquartered in Sparks, Nevada. They do a lot of great work in the space realm for Department of Defense. They do a lot of other things as well. It's not just an A-29 company. That's not by far. That's not all we do. But in the A-29, you know, it's pretty awesome to see how all the engineers and everybody comes together with Embraer to assemble these things, modify them, train these guys, and then sustain the aircraft once it gets out there. That's just good for the taxpayer, right? That everybody that's out there that's competent at their job is one less place that we have to prop up on our own. Or maybe we just have to give them a little nudge every now and then and not just go full bore. And it's not now a vacuum that's going to be taken over by who knows who, right? Right. So I think that's good stuff. Again, it's rewarding turning those young guys into guys who are going to go out and do that job. So.
0: Oh, I bet it is. And if I learned anything in the last hour, it's the void that you said that who knows who's going to fill in there. It's going to be those, what'd you say? Nefarious characters, Nefarious
2: so. actors. That's right. <laughs> actors. Oh, okay. I was 100%. Close. <laughs> All
0: right. Spam. Well then, uh, appreciate your time today. How did someone come up with spam for Samuel? Oh Milam?
2: God, it was so sad. <laughs> I wish it was a good story. Kind of like Billy, you know, you're a 35 guy. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't really a good story. But I'm going up to the front of the room and they're going to nominate, everybody's going to say, okay, tell me what he did in the training in the Air Force mission qualification training at your first ops unit.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: When you get done with that and you're a full up wingman, check ride, complete, ready to go to war guy, those guys are the ones who give you your call sign. Okay. So I'm at McCord Air Force Base. We're in the auditorium and you know everybody's had a few cocktails and are still having some. And I'm the only guy getting names. So I go up there and they're going to nominate and they're going to throw around ideas and then they're going to vote on it. And as I'm walking up to the front, so my middle initial is P and this one guy all week had been hinting at spam. Spam is what we're going to call him. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I, you don't get a vote, right? Right. Of course. As the name E I'm walking up to the front and he's in the back and he starts singing the spam song from freaking Monty Python, you know, <laughs> spam, 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 spam. And everybody in the room started singing it. And by the time I got up to the front, it was all over. It was decided. It was sad. It was sad. And it wasn't because I didn't do stupid things. That's certainly not the case. Oh,
0: yeah. That's true for all of us. All right. So in other words, you can blame this one guy and Monty
2: Python. That's right. I tell people it stands for stupid people annoy me, which is fair. (laughs)
0: Well, whether it stands for that or not, that could still be a true statement. Right.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Fair
0: enough. Well, it's easy to say and it's fun and it, you know, makes you laugh. So I think, sure. you know, it's like you and I could start a club, Jello and Spam.
2: I tell you what I have to do though, Jello yeah. is I send people emails and I go, hey, check your spam folder because no kidding, some of my emails get <laughs> <laughs> diverted right into the spam folder. <laughs> I didn't get your email, dude. Check your spam folder; yeah, it's that's probably
0: hilarious. In there. You're the only one who can claim to have a folder on everyone's email.
2: Absolutely, I send a lot of people phone calls too every day. Potential <laughs> spam, potentially.
0: See, there's no Jello folder in people. Takes up a lot that. of my time. I'm jealous here. That's funny. All right, Spam. Well, you've been a fun uh, addition to the discussion. And again, I I do think that while this doesn't always get the attention and clearly it doesn't get nor need the money, it's still an important topic. So I appreciate you stopping by the Fighter Pilot Podcast to help us understand it.
2: It's been a blast, brother. I appreciate the time.
0: All right. Well, big thanks again to the Sierra Nevada Corporation and Samuel Milam spam for taking the time today to talk about the 21st century light attack and the A29 boat. I thought it was really cool. Good discussion.
3: Great discussion. A lot of good data points in there. And uh, I think we can definitely spend some time maybe dissecting a few here and there, but uh, otherwise, yeah, I loved it. Yeah, A lot of information I didn't know about. So that was great.
0: I don't think I uh, acknowledged what he said about bright star at the time, but he said he had a chance to go do that. And I did as well. That's an exercise that I don't know if they still do it or not, but we used to do, I think it was every other year with Egypt. And I did it twice when I was a junior officer in my first squadron. And the second time I actually got to go into Egypt, we had a chance to tour the pyramids and saw an SA2 sitting on a rail at one of the bases and just got to operate with those guys. It was really interesting. Do you ever do any bright star stuff, Boat? No,
3: I honestly, I didn't even know that thing existed. But now that you've mentioned all those cool opportunities, I missed something that sounds pretty amazing. So I wish I had.
0: Well, this was in the late nineties and some of the guys on the boat had a chance to meet make 21s and swirl it up with them. I never did, but uh, yeah, I did get to go into country the second time. It was a lot of fun. So, Hey, so what did you think of spam's idea on the pilot training pipeline? I mean, it's pretty novel, but I don't know. I see some potential conflict there too, but what, I don't What do you think?
3: I went back and I listened to it a couple more times because I wanted to try to break it down from what he talked about and maybe put some pros and cons to those data points that you guys might have not discussed or at least expound upon them a little bit. So within the Air Force pilot training system, we have IFT, that initial flight training where you go fly a DA-20 and you get your 10, 15, maybe 20 hours, whatever it is, basically just enough of a, we know they're going to be able to accomplish T-6 undergraduate pilot training and they're not going to throw up. We're not going to lose them, and they're going to wash out right away, and we'll move them on. And then they go to undergraduate pilot training, where now they fly T 6s. Previously, it was T 37s. And they go fly T 6s, and they get experience, and they go through that process, and then they move on. And as long as they track select at this point to T 38s, then they go fly T 38s. And now you're in that fighter bomber track. I think now you're in the line to potentially go into what he was calling companion training squadrons or. Or essentially adversary air, red air, whatever you want to call it. After T-38 training, you go to IFF and you get that basic dogfighting, just very top level concept of point your airplane here, look to enter turn circles and employ electronic bullets at that point through the T-38C HUD at a target or Drop bombs, and I think probably this is more air to air centric. So I don't know how much they're going to care about the bomb dropping potential of it. But at least now transition from IFF into that T seven adversary support squadron, companion training squadron at an F twenty two F thirty five base, and I think that was the whole process there. And then I didn't ever hear a timeline for how long they would sit at one of those companion squadrons. I would imagine, for the sense of dollars and gaining the experience and what they're looking for, they're probably going to spend maybe two to three years there, and. It's probably that same timeline as the FAPES that we discussed Mm -hmm. in the Hawker Hurricane episode, where you're there for a whole assignment, probably about three years at a pilot training base, or in this case, a companion training squadron. And then you move back into the CAF, the Combat Air Force Cycle, and you go to the FTU, the formal training unit, where you go fly your F-22, F-16, F-35, whatever it is. and You get your training and then you go on to your standard unit there. So that's the rundown. If anybody was confused, because I know I was the first time I heard it. And I think the concept is, again, like you said, a novel one. Mm -hmm. I would love to see uh, how this all goes. We've touched on a few things here and there. And if you've ever listened to the Afterburn podcast with Rain, he has gone in through some of the pilot training next and, and a few of these other conceptual things where they're using VR headsets and all a few other things here and there. You get, less flights, but more simulators or something along those lines. And there's so many changes right now in the pilot training world and how to produce pilots exactly in line with what was being discussed as to why they were trying to generate more fighter pilots specifically. You do have some real advantages there with gaining experience, flying, airmanship, getting that extra few hundred hours, whatever it is. Plus now you're also adding in a lot of tactical knowledge that I know when I went through the B course or the FTU and the F-16. We had that top off at IFF and we got some very top level kind of concepts put into our heads, but there was not enough time to really drill them in. And I think that this potentially could give you some more of that, but you're definitely there for beyond visual range training more than you are for dogfighting. And so I think if you're looking to come out of that as an expert in dogfighting, I don't know if that's necessarily realistic, but I think potentially there's at least a chance for you to gain a lot more awareness of what those concepts are. The negative sides that I kind of wrote down here were uh, habits. You potentially get some bad habits. And I know coming out of the red air world, Jello, I know you didn't transition necessarily back into the blue flying world, as I like to call it, after your time as an adversary. But I did. I will tell you that it was challenging leaving the red air mindset and going back to flying U.S. Air Force tactics and procedures to go destroy your enemies. So there are some potential habits that you're going to have to break. Career lag, again, much like FAPES will go through you're now not in the normal timeline. And so that potentially could create some challenges for promotions down the road and opportunities and that kind of thing. And then you guys touched on it, Jello, was the higher age thing and and potentially putting people now with a career lag also at an older age physically in the fighter community later. And potentially that will then force them out at the end of their commitment as opposed to uh, staying in longer and maybe having some other opportunities. So those are my initial thoughts. That was a little longer than I was anticipating it. So sorry, Jello, but what are your thoughts on it?
0: No, that was all good. you know. In, in addition to the career lag, of course, and the age is more likely to be married and now start having kids and suddenly schools matter, right? And you don't wanna yeah. uproot children out of schools necessarily. But also, I don't know about in the Air Force, obviously I never did it, but in the Navy, we had like sea tour, shore tour rotations, right? So you still need young O3s, uh, lieutenants in our case, captains in yours, at different billets, whether it's as instructors in different places. Now, if you're a FAPE, that's kind of moot. But whether it's instructor, or on flagstaffs or in, God forbid, different fleets in our cases or major staffs, right? Or the Pentagon. Most yeah. people tried to avoid that. They wanted to keep flying, but you still need folks in all those different places. And so if that dries up, that changes all that. So I guess there's obviously a lot of risk, right? It's a good idea, I think, but to implement it it's not just like, oh, I'm going to flip the switch, and if I don't like it, I'll flip it back the other way, right? Yeah. It's a big deal, because you're going to make all these folks start moving. You won't see the effects right away. I don't know. It, again, intriguing. I bet the folks that make these kinds of decisions are going to be real averse to any huge changes without some pretty compelling evidence.
3: And you know what's really awesome about all of that, Jilla? hmm Neither of us have to make that
0: decision. <laughs> I just have to decide what we're going to talk about next week. But that's uh right. that's anyway, right. getting back on point. So I really enjoyed the discussion. You know, it kind of plodded along a little bit at times. That was probably my fault. But again, it's not a sexy topic per se, but you don't need the Ferrari all week long. And that's what I guess I was trying to make the point of with an F-150 or some other vehicle, right? Is you need to do something else. I don't know, about, I'm not saying spam was wrong, but to me. It seems pretty easy to proliferate certain weapons these days. Any kind of high-caliber cannon or gun or even a shoulder-fired missile seems pretty easy. Maybe I've been out of the game too long, but do you think he properly addressed that threat? I mean, all it takes is a case of these things in the right hands. and Yeah, he talked about altitude and IR signature and stuff, but well, I don't know. To me, that seems a pretty big deal.
3: Well, yeah, I think the uh, proliferation piece, yeah, the golden BB, I think there are probably more golden BBs than there ever have been, and I don't think that's going away anytime soon, and Mm -hmm. especially now, look what happened in Afghanistan and the drawdown there, the quick reduction of troops, and there's quite a bit of equipment, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of it ours. (laughs) We know what it can do and everything that it is capable of, and so, you know, now what? Yeah. Yeah. Where does that go and whose hands does it end up in and everything? that's a whole different discussion for another time. That being said, yeah, I think there are definitely some serious threats that are out there. And this is a risky job. Sure. There's a time to take risks and some of them are necessary. And then some of them, you know, we can mitigate to the point of being successful or at least meeting the commander's intent with an acceptable level of risk involved. So yeah, I don't think there is a good answer on that one. I will say that, uh, yeah, we don't drive the F-35s every single day for the purposes of drilling holes in the sky for a reason. They're expensive to operate, and I think it is a valid tool. I think this light attack concept is an absolutely a valid tool. How we go about getting us to the point where we can employ it on a regular basis is obviously a different story. Yeah,
0: Hey, he threw out the term saddle and I just smiled and nodded, but in truth, I'm not really sure what that is. Can you help us out? <laughs>
3: SADL. So a new acronym for the list there, but uh saddle situation awareness data link. If you've ever heard of link 16, link 11, exactly the same thing. It's just a different interface, if you okay. will, on a different platform. So typically black 30 F 16s and earlier. So essentially if you could look at the air national guard and the f-16s they fly they're the ones that are primary users same with the a-10s they are the primary users of that as well okay there is a way for saddle and link aircraft to talk to each other and an interface there basically if you look at the interface now they are very similar but before they were very different and it was a lot harder to communicate between the two but now i think they've standardized the interfaces pretty well
0: okay and the only other note I took from listening to ourselves again is that we both snickered a couple times about taxpayers, but did you know six in 10 Americans paid no federal income tax in 2020?
3: No, first and foremost. And second, I don't know if I feel like a sucker or <laughs> if I feel more American for paying more taxes. I don't know what the answer is. On uh, that.
0: You're one of the four then. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, let's get off of that. Cause we always say we're not going to talk politics and other <laughs> controversial <laughs> issues on here. So, all right. Well, I, that's all I had from the discussion. What else did you have on the light attack stuff? Anything?
3: No, I gave you obviously a laundry list of stuff there. I thought it was a really great discussion. I think it probably involves, or potentially could be another conversation for another time as one, sure. the discussion on what decision is made comes to light. And Obviously, if they decide nothing, then that's a non-starter. But if they they do decide to have an airplane, we have a couple of options available, obviously. I think it's worth diving back into and talking specifics, maybe more with respect to the individual platform. So.
0: Yeah, for sure. We can circle back when uh, there's a decision and the whole program of record thing. So yeah. All right. Otherwise we can begin to wrap up. Now, Boat, I'm saving all the difficult pronunciations for you for next time, but I'm going to take all the easy Patreon strike leads. Thanks very much. Uh, we've got new supporters, Tim Villa, Carl Clemens and Tyler Gay. And of course, the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. I should say that the Sierra Nevada Nevada Corporation had a representative that listened to the interview and they approved. So I guess we can call that their uh, endorsement. Hey, everyone. Real quick before we go, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. He's a fellow pilot and the executive director of the A7 Corsair Two Association. Matt Gerritsen, how's it going, bud? Doing
1: great, Jello. How about you?
0: I'm great. So we're having you on real quick here at the end of our episode to tell us what you're working on because one thing I didn't say is you're also an author.
1: Yes, sir, I am. I've been working on a number of books with the Blue Angels, which has been a blast. All right. And we're about to release the first of eight volumes of a historical narrative of the team. Great. Well, how did this book project come about? I was spending a lot of time in the archives at the Naval Aviation Museum in Pensacola working on a book on the A-7. And as I was going through the archives, I couldn't help but notice a bunch of shelves with boxes that were labeled Blue Angels History curiosity got the better of me. And I took a look inside and was just amazed at what I found. Great photographs, documents, the whole history of the team is located in the museum's archives. And I just thought, wow, most of this has not been shared with the public ever. Nobody's seen this and it would be great to share it with Blue Angels fans around the world. As a result, I started a book project called Blue Angels Decades, which takes the history of the team from its beginning in 1946 and tells the story in 10-year increments. And the first volume is releasing today.
0: All right. Today is November 4th as this episode airs. So how does this book differ from other books on the Blue Angels?
1: I guess the easiest answer, Jello, is the depth of historical detail. There are a lot of books on the Blue Angels, and each pretty much tells the history of the team in just that book. And as a result, the story of the early years, tends to be told in just a few pages, and it mostly shares the same photographs that have been seen throughout the years. Focusing on the team in a 10-year segment, we're really able to dive into the detail, telling the story of each season in words, photos, documents, memorabilia, and most of this stuff, as I said, has never been seen by the general public.
0: That's great. So will even hardcore Blue Angel fans learn something new from this book?
1: Absolutely. Just for example, in the course of my research, I was surprised to find how little is known and documented about the team's first three years. This is especially true of the demonstrations that they flew. Most of the documentation within the archives basically says in the first three years, the team went here, here, and here. There was never a chronological documentation of the schedule. It took me about a year and a half of research, but I was able to uh, really tune in and document where the team was on what dates, what venues, what they did. That information is included in the first volume. And there's a lot of other things, but that I think serves as a good example.
0: Yeah, for sure. Now your most critical audience, probably Matt, is going to be former team members. How are they responding?
1: You know, i got to tell you, that has been the most rewarding aspect of this project so far. I sent advanced copies of Volume 1 to a number of Blue Angel alums, and to a person, the reactions have been overwhelmingly positive. Former bosses like Greg Rugdance Woolridge and Kevin Nix Mannix have stated independently, as have a number of others, that this book project will serve as the official historical document for the team. And I couldn't ask for a better reaction. It's been very fun to see the team look through the book, both the current team and alums. They seem to love it, which is music to my ears.
0: Oh, for sure. That's a solid endorsement and a lot of hard work on your part. So there's two versions available.
1: Describe those. We have the regular edition of the volume one is a soft cover About 160 pages. It measures roughly eight inches tall by 11 and a half wide. And in addition to this version, because we all know Blue Angels fans are hardcore about collecting really special things about the team, we created what we call a plank owner version. And this is a hardback version that comes with a hardback sleeve. It's quite a bit bigger than the regular version, it's 11 and a half inches tall by 16 and a half inches wide. We've only made a thousand copies of the Plank owner version. Each is signed and numbered and comes with a similarly numbered commemorative challenge coin. Folks who buy this special limited edition Plank owner version have the right of first refusal of buying future editions. And each volume will only make a thousand copies of these books. And I would like to call out that a portion of the proceeds from all the books that we're selling will go to the blue angels association to support their great philanthropic efforts. Fantastic. How can listeners acquire a copy of these books, Matt? Best way to do that is go to the website, which is blue We have a secure ordering system online and you can purchase either the regular edition or the plank owner. There's still a few of those left. We will be uh, offering these for sale to museums and bookstores throughout the U.S. as we get this first rollout of Volume 1.
0: Blue Angel Decades, plural.com. Yes, sir. Sounds great. All right, Matt. Well, thanks for stopping by to tell us about this project, and I hope it goes well.
1: Well, thank you, Jill. I really appreciate being able to share with you and our, your listeners this story about a a really cool book project. I hope that the average Blue Angel fan loves it just as much as the team seems to. Boat, I think that's going to do it for this week. And you know,
0: we're going to see you again at the end of the month. What should we do between now and then?
1: Joe, I've got about a
3: thousand ideas, but they're all Warbird related. So I'll throw this back to you (laughs) because I'm not in a decision-making mood.
0: Oh, okay. Well, I honestly don't know we're going to have to come up with something and I've got a couple leads and we can always repurpose some happy hours, but all right, well, I'm sure we'll come up with something and we'll see everybody back here in 10 days for that. Hopefully it'll be exciting, Bo, you've been a good sport and a lot of fun, uh, on this episode as well as on all your warbirds. Thanks for all your help, buddy.
3: Hey, thanks so much. Having a blast doing this, uh, love meeting and interacting with everybody. And, uh, for those that, uh, may be in the Denver area, I'll be back home for the Thanksgiving timeframe, maybe potentially at one of our, uh, cohorts here in the uh, podcast behind the network at his uh, restaurant. Yeah. So we'll have to go uh, potentially throw something out there and meet up.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, reach out on social media if you want to get with boat. And yeah, I should probably do that uh, with some of our layovers, let people know where I am at. We can meet up for a refreshment or something, but yeah, otherwise, boat, thanks very much. And to all our listeners, appreciate you tuning in to the fighter pilot podcast. And we'll see you back here next time.
2: You've been listening to the fighter pilot podcast brought to you by BBR productions got a question for the show email us at questions at fighter podcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877 mach 101 that's 877-622-4101 be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website fighter podcast.com for exclusive content and to help support the show check out our patreon page thanks for listening